Well, we're in the midst of a, um, a series that's taking us through Philippians, and we're, we're closing in. This is the second to last message we'll finish up next week. It's a, a series titled Partners in Grace, which is a nod to the special relationship that the Apostle Paul had with this church. He referred to the Philippians' partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that the Greek word translated partnership there is the word koinonia. You, you might have come across that at some point. It means fellowship, uh, r- relationship. So what the Philippians and Paul enjoyed was friendship centered on the message of Jesus. And it was, it was deep, much less like a business partnership and more like a spiritual family. That's what they enjoyed. And today we're at the first half of chapter four, uh, verses one through nine. This portion of the letter includes an appeal to stand firm in faith, a plea for unity in the church, and some very practical uh, coaching for how to live in God's peace now. Not just to know about in our heads, but what to do to go on living in God's peace. So let's listen to the scripture, shall we? Scripture this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter four, verses one through nine. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintitia to be of the same mind in the Lord, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Al. So Paul begins with this appeal to stand firm. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. And there's Paul's favorite word again, therefore. You know, so you gotta look back at what came before to understand the logic of what he's saying now. And in addition to that, he's asking them to stand firm in a particular way. So we have to ask, well, what, what's that about? So let, let's look back for a second. The verses just before these, the end of chapter three. For as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control 
will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Uh, so, so here's the logic Paul's using. Uh, because our true citizenship is in heaven, because our real identity is in Christ, because Jesus will return to earth just like he said, and because he has the power to bring everything under his control, and because he will transform us to be like him in his glory just as he promised, because all of that is true, stand firm, or literally be steadfast. Steadfast, firmly fixed in place, immovable, not subject to change, firm in belief, determination, or adherence. Steadfast, firmly fixed. Paul tells us to stand firm, be immovable, and and stand firm in the Lord in this way. Okay, well, what way is that? That rewinds to verse 16 in chapter 3. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Meaning, everything that we've learned of Jesus, any growth in faith, any growth in the Lord, let us live up to that. Let's not live under what we've attained. Let's live up to what we have attained. What we've learned, let's put it into practice. What we've observed in mature Christ followers who've gone before us, let's imitate their example. So basically, Paul is saying this, be immovable in your faith in Jesus by focusing on the future and what will happen in Christ and putting into practice what we've learned about following Jesus. Focus on the future, put into practice what we've learned. The appeal to stand firm in this way. And and then there's this very interesting plea uh, because, because Paul calls out two women by name, something he rarely does. He speaks directly to these two women in in the community of the church in Philippi. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. You know, you can read about the planting or the founding of the church in Philippi in the book of Acts. And it really was founded as the Apostle Paul and his colleagues met with a group of women outside the gate, uh, Lydia selling fabric, right? It, it, it launched uh, with some women taking the lead in that city. So it makes you wonder, were Euodia and Syntyche part of that group? Were, were they part of that core group that, that planted this thing? We don't know. But what we do know is that Paul never describes the problem He never explains the issue upon which these two are disagreeing. He makes no effort to kind of lay out the arguments and review their validity and try to come to a conclusion as to who's right or or who's wrong. Nor does he play Switzerland. Nor does he just step back and say, look, this is their deal. They've got to figure it out. It's their thing. It doesn't really impact anybody else. He issues a plea to each woman individually. Now, did you notice that? He didn't say, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche. He said, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. The word translated plead has the range of meaning to, uh, meaning to ask, to beg, to exhort, to urge, to invite. Paul was pleading to be of the same mind in the Lord 
It's a recurring theme in Philippians, right? That, that Greek word, uh, being of the same mind, literally means to hold a similar opinion to that of others on, on the big things. Setting one's mind similarly to others, having a similar attitude. And of course, back in chapter two, the apostle Paul told, tells us all as followers of Jesus that we should have the same mindset as Jesus himself had. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. And remember, his mindset was one of humility and, and giving of himself on behalf of others, being willing to say, oh, if I can help, I'm happy to. Oh, can I give this? I'm happy to give this to you. Having the same mind. Paul's saying to these two women, and to us, I believe, each of you should take it upon yourself to make the first move in reconciliation by adopting the mindset of Jesus and allowing his example of humility to guide your relationships. Because the unity of the church impacts the witness of the church in the world. Another big theme in Paul's letter, the way our faith is lived out in relationships matters for the mission of God in the world. Can I say that again? The way our faith is lived out in relationships matters for the mission of God in the world. In fact, that's exactly where God's mission meets its front line, is in the relationship of Christ's followers with people who don't yet know Jesus. That's the edge. That's where it matters most. Uh, to put that another way, in the words of one of my favorite commentators, Alec Motier, the public success of the church along the front where it faces the world depends upon the measure of sanctification of each individual Christian. Well, that'll bring it home. Right, the way we behave matters. The words we choose matter. The way we are with other people matters. And not just for our lives and the person we're talking to. It matters on a much larger scale. And we all have a choice here, don't we? It's kind of, it's kind of where the rubber meets the road with regard to real faith in Jesus. Will we allow our faith in Jesus to guide us in our most challenging relationships? Now, there it is. I'll never forget an experience I had back at a church I served in Des Moines. A good friend of mine and a member of the church asked to come meet with me after I had preached a message on forgiveness. And somewhere along the line in the reading you do when you're a pastor preparing sermons, I had come across this line about how unforgiveness is kind of like taking poison and hoping it'll hurt the other person. Right, that, that idea, if we, if we just continue to make the choice to remember other people's sin against them, um, no matter whether they've asked for forgiveness or not, if, if we're in that place of choosing that and just digging our heels in in that place, it's kind of like taking poison and hoping it'll hurt the other person, right? So this guy, this guy had an issue with that. He wanted to talk about that because his brother had offended him. Remember, he, I had a little round table in my office, much like I, I do here, and he sat, and there was a legal pad there, and he just picked up a pen and started doodling on the legal pad. And he's talking to me and kind of doodling 
over here. And I'm, I, I try to make eye contact when I'm listening, so I'm looking him in the eye, and he's doodling, and I hear the pen getting harder on the page. And his, his anger at his brother was coming through his doodling onto my legal pad. I just can't forgive him. I can't. It was so wrong. I am not going to forgive him. And we talked about that. There were no great breakthroughs in that moment. But when he left, I looked at my legal pad. There was a big black blob right in the middle of the page. And I just so remember thinking, that's kind of a picture of his heart right now. It's so tied up in this, you know. So in, in our relationships, be of the same mind. As far as it's up to us, live at peace with everyone. You know, not everybody's going to ask for forgiveness. But in some ways, we still have a choice, right? I, I think that what, that's what Paul is getting to in this, in this next part of uh, the passage today. You, you can choose a different way. You know, rather than getting riled by the world, the Bible has some coaching for us on, to, on how to live in God's peace. Again, not just know about it, but what to do. Very practical stuff. Oh, we get coaching on how to live in God's peace in our relationships, in our circumstances, in our thinking, and in our behavior. And Paul is very practical here. So look at, let's look at relationships and circumstances first. Here it is, verses four through seven. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'll start with a promise at the end, that the peace of God guarding our hearts and our minds. The Hebrew concept of heart was uh, the center of your being, not just your physical heart, right? The center of your being from which flowed your whole life, uh, who you are, right? With the idea being that if you give your heart to wrong things, you'll reap the consequences of that. Also, if you're aware of your heart and, and guard it, giving it to God and things that are good and, and right and noble, then your life will be better and more fulfilling, There's an implicit acknowledgement here that there are many, many lies parading around this world promising things they can't deliver. In this promise, God's peace will do for the believer what Proverbs urged young people to do. Above all else, guard your hearts for everything you do flows from it. The peace of God will guard your hearts, Paul says, and the peace of God will guard your minds. This is the inner dialogue. Right? This is what's rumbling around in our heads more than just passing thoughts now. We're talking about ideas vying for control in the inner dialogue. That's, that's the mind. Another implicit acknowledgement here that there are many lies posing as truth. And the mind is where we sort all of this out and make decisions on which voices to believe. Think about it. This is incredibly profound. Any decisions of faith are filtered through all that, that inner dialogue of the mind. Uh, you fifth regulars know my story coming to faith later in life. I so remember the inner dialogue. What? You're actually going to go down this road of saying you believe that 
uh, Jesus was actually raised from the dead, that's plain dumb. When people die, they're dead. They don't rise from the dead. How could you possibly entertain believing that? Right? All the unspoken voices, but all those, an idea vying for control. See, the, the, the mind is where the spiritual battle happens. And in that inner dialogue of the mind, they're battling for control of your heart, the center of your being. So all those voices vying for control, trying to capture the heart. And from the biblical perspective, there are four voices that populate the inner dialogue, the world, the flesh, the devil, and the Lord. So we have to sort through who's speaking when. And the promise here that Paul says is, is that the peace of God will guard our minds, protect us from the screw tape letter-like assault upon, of the enemy upon our thinking geared at taking control of our hearts, our lives. But, says Paul, this is conditional. There are some conditions of that peace. Some things we have to do to activate the promise. In our relationships, choose joy and show gentle forbearance. That's what Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Rejoice not in your situation, but in the Lord. Always. Choose joy in all situations of life. This isn't happiness now. Joy is based on a relationship with Jesus, which cannot be shaken by any earthly relationship. So choose joy in the Lord. Always in the midst of your earthly relationships. And let your gentleness, literally gentle forbearance, be evident to all. This is what Paul said in Ephesians, right? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. It's a word we hardly use in our day, forbearance. What does it mean to bear with another person in love? What it means is to give other people the same slack that Jesus has given you. That's what it means. To extend to other human beings the same grace that you've received from the Lord. It changes the way you interact with other people. And we should do this because it should amaze us how God forbears with us. He bears with us in all of our brokenness, failures, mistakes, our willful sin, hurtful behavior, bad moods, and obnoxious personalities. Right? Gentle forbearance is about giving other people the same slack that Jesus has given you. Because really, where would you be if God didn't show you gentle forbearance? So here it is, to live in God's peace in our relationships, choose joy and give others the same slack Jesus has given you. Peace in relationships. Uh, peace in circumstances. To live in God's peace in our circumstances, resist anxiety and request help. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You know, it's not rocket science here. Prayer with thanksgiving is a great way to resist anxiety because we're requesting help from the God in whom we have faith, whom we trust, right? So thankful prayer is a great way to activate faith 
in times of anxiety. It's expressions of thanks. What are you thankful for? It's a bomb for anxiety. And then you can present your requests to God out of that place of thankfulness. See, if prayer ushers in a peace in the face of anxiety, then I, I have to assume that without prayer, we're vulnerable. Um, in tough times, marked by fear and uncertainty and conflict, those spiritual enemies and dangers are many. They can invade our thinking, the mind again, right? Inner dialogue, with a goal toward taking over our hearts. Sometimes anxiety, thankful prayer, can be a way to resist and to request help. And Paul moves quickly to our thought life, so relationships and circumstances so far, then our thought life and what we can think about to help us in the battle of the mind. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And, And he unpacks a pretty useful tool there, a model for use in our inner dialogue. And he talks about spiritual strongholds in our, in our thinking, in our inner dialogue that can become outposts of the enemy in the attacks on our heart. And, and Paul says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, when I was a younger Christian, I thought that meant don't think about bad things. And, and I think there's kind of a 101 level to that. It's much greater than that. Because really I think what it means in its fullness to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, it means to bring into line our thinking uh, with who we've been declared to be in Christ. So it's much bigger than just don't think bad things. But what Paul is getting at here is just a basic human reality. He's saying that we can take the active step of directing our thinking toward the things of God, toward things that are, are good and right and beautiful and lovely and, and noble and praiseworthy. And one big difference between humans and animals is that we can choose what we think about. That's amazing. This is way more than just good advice you'll get from your counselor, which good counselors will tell you this, right? Directed thinking is a great way to combat harmful thoughts. But that's not the end of that. On on, on the spiritual side of this, it's incredibly powerful because we're bringing to bear God's truth on that inner dialogue where the voices are attacking and and kind of assaulting. And again, it's not rocket science. If you think about things that are are harmful or, or maybe sinful or demeaning of other people, if you're intentionally fostering thoughts that think ill of other people, I mean, that path leads somewhere, right? That's not without result. And the opposite is true. If you you think about things that are good and noble and admirable, I mean, that path leads somewhere too. That's not the end all. It's just that directing our thoughts is one aspect of the battle of the mind. And it's an important one. So to live in God's peace in our thought life, direct thoughts toward things that are good, noble, and admirable. And finally, in our behavior. To live in God's peace in our behavior, put into practice all that you've learned of Jesus. Paul said it like this, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The apostles 
and their teaching are our guides. Right? Paul's naming a deep truth here. It's possible to know a lot about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, yet continue to live a life of little to no spiritual transformation. That is possible. You know, biblical belief is not just information about the faith, right? Uh, information does not lead to transformation. Information plus application leads to transformation. Biblically, the word repent means change your thinking you know, to, the, to the worldview of Jesus. And the word believe means to align our lives to that change of thinking. Thus, Jesus' very first command, right? Repent and believe the good news. Change your thinking to align with the message of Jesus and align your life to that change of thinking. So biblical belief is information plus application, not just information alone. And this idea is all through the Bible. Just when you're reading devotionally, put this filter on just for a little bit. Think about James. Faith without works is dead. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Or Jesus' story about the wise and foolish builders. I mentioned this not long ago. Uh, you know, the foolish built on sand, the wise built on rock. The, the very interesting contextual background here is the Judean wilderness, places where there was just all sand, that only occurred in the bottom of a wadi, a riverbed, which is dry, you know, like 360 days a year. But those five days in the rainy season, when it's torrential downpour, there's a raging river through that place. So think about that context. The foolish builder built his house in the bottom of a dry riverbed. All the while, the wise guy is saying, hey, you probably should have seen that coming, right? I mean, spiritually, that, that, that is true. The distinction between them, remember, was not whether they heard the word, but whether they put it into practice whether they did it, applied it. To live in God's peace, put into practice what you've learned of Jesus. It's a very, very practical passage in my mind. Uh, how to live in God's peace in our relationships, our circumstances, our, our thought life, and our behavior. Now, I don't know how you listen to a sermon. When I listen, I try to hold several things in my mind. First, I try to remember that the preacher isn't perfect. Um, never more so than in this particular case. So I'm comparing everything the person is saying to what I know of scripture and running, running it through that filter all the while. Second, I'm not just listening for an interesting tidbit here or there. I'm not listening simply to be edified. I try to listen to be changed, to be transformed. You know, third, I know that transformation comes from being a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. So I'm asking myself, how might I need to apply the word being preached? What do I need to do with this? Because I know it's my responsibility, not somebody else's. And then after that, I have a pretty simple filter. Probably just shows how simple I am. In the sermon, was there a place of real resonance? Did, did something cause a generation of other thoughts in you where you saw linkages happening or saw a new connections, something like that? Where was the resonance or where was the rub? Where did you internally say, ouch? You know, knowing that there might have been some conviction kind of bubbling up. Oh, where did the word preached shine a light into a place you're more comfortable leaving dark? 
Was there anything revealed to you about weak spots or go-to temptations? You know, things like that. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to communicate with the people of God. So let's not miss that. How is the Lord getting your attention today? With regard to this theme of living in God's peace, because in yet another place, Paul said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Literally, let the peace of Christ referee, make the calls for you. Let the peace of Christ guide you and make decisions for you, which is the path that will lead to the greatest implementation of the peace of Christ. So how was God getting your attention with regard to that today? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, we do thank you that you, uh, that you have spoken in your word, that you are speaking now by your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, make us a whole community of faith here uh, with an increased capacity to hear. Help us to hear you, Lord. And by your spirit, encourage us, empower us, embolden us to not stop there, but to take the next step and to do something about it. God, show us what you would like to do with that which you reveal to us. Make us your people, not just in internal belief, but in whole life action. And we ask it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.